everyone and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. I'm Duncan Rayburn and this is episode 4 in our series on a murdered god and an exiled queen. If you're still with me on this series, thanks and well done. I realize that I'm taking you into some unusual territory and some tricky philosophical arguments, but I hope you'll see as we go along that ideas have consequences. Even if the ideas I'm sharing with you are abstract and sometimes even a little obscure, it's precisely these ideas that made the murder of God possible during the Enlightenment, and it meant that the queen of the sciences, theology, had to step down from her throne and rule at a distance. So far I can summarize my case in two points, which have already been covered in previous episodes. The first is that as the world becomes bathed in the frivolous and the contingent, as it becomes much more complex, obviously that's part of it, it also becomes more difficult to trust in the transcendentally permanent. The second is that the shift from analogy to university creates a perception of insurmountable distance between God and ourselves that makes it easier to believe that God is not really the ground of our being, who is also intimately near to us. To be clear, university does reveal many things that are true, and without a basic trust in university, the natural sciences would not have developed to such great heights. But it is definitely not the whole truth, and forgetting or losing the analogy of being amounts to creating the conditions that make belief in God unbelievable. Now, in this episode, we're going to move on to a few more of my case notes and onto another huge historical shift in theological thinking, which took place at the hands of Peter Abelard and later William of Ockham in the late medieval period. The core issue of this episode is really, um, in part, the shift in how truth and language work with each other. Right up front, it helps to notice that William of Ockham and John Duns Scotus, who are the prime theological suspects in this criminal investigation so far, were not secularists, but devout Franciscan monks. For all I know, they would have been horrified at the implications of their thinking. When we get to the reformers, who are also implicated in this theological crime scene, the same would be true. They did not, or maybe could not, foretell what we now see very clearly with the gift of hindsight. In general, the trouble with coming up with new ideas or new ways of framing things is that they often still need to be tested. Sometimes our innovations are ingenious and highly beneficial, but sometimes they are not. Sometimes we only know much later what a terribly misguided thing it was to adopt a particular belief or life strategy. Sometimes you only know if you've taken the wrong turn way down the road when suddenly it dawns on you that something doesn't quite feel right. Where you have ended up wasn't where you were hoping to end up. So with this in mind, let's talk about universals. Plato, who I am inordinately fond of and who was hugely influential in the shaping of Christian theology and Christian mysticism, Plato was fond of talking about ideas. When we today hear the word idea, we tend to equate this only with a mental abstraction. In our world, the idea of a bridge is not the bridge itself, but its cognitive representation. In general, we would say the bridge is real while the idea of the bridge isn't. 
The fact that we will think this without questioning it is precisely because we are moderns. But when Plato wrote about ideas, he was thinking of ideas as real. Ideas, in fact, are more real than things, although things are also real. The idea of a bridge, its intelligible form, in other words, its meaning and its significance is more real than the bridge itself. Actually, in Plato's world, the bridge itself as a thing is utterly inconceivable apart from the idea. Without the idea, the form, the bridge isn't real. It isn't there at all. We would not even recognize it. And this may feel at first like a case of putting the representational cart before the ontological horse, but Plato's brilliance on this point shouldn't be misunderstood. A musical metaphor may help. In music, we have the idea of harmony. Music can have innumerable variations in content, instrumentation, arrangement, style, and so on, and yet music can be found in all of these variations because of harmony. Beethoven and the Beatles and Kanye West all make musical sense because they rest in the idea that is the reality of harmony. This doesn't mean that dissonance is impossible, but that even with dissonance present, as in the music of Schoenberg, music is what operates according to a pattern, although it is possible for one musical composition to be a better representative of harmony than another. Music comes and goes, and musical styles come and go, but harmony remains. Harmony, then, would be an example of a platonic idea. It's not something merely conceptual, but it gives music its sense, its beauty, its form and meaning. We hear music not because harmony is merely a mental abstraction, but because it is the reality that all music participates in, precisely so that it can be music. Before the composer pens black notes to a score sheet, or before an improviser plays notes and chords to create music spontaneously, there is harmony, and the harmony becomes flesh and dwells among us. Harmony is not merely something that we discern after the music has been made and listened to, but before. The idea, Plato's eidos, which is also translated as form, is what makes something both possible and actual. Some people have tried to work on something called aleatoric music or chance music, with many people playing random bits of a score that would fly past them on a kind of aerial conveyor belt. But if sense can be discerned even in that kind of chance music, it is because not everything is left to chance. Even in the chaos, you might be able to discern harmony. A biblical example of this platonic idea would be the idea of the Logos in the first chapter of the book of John. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God and was God, and so on. And the Logos became flesh and tabernacled among us. The incarnation of Christ, as this passage suggests, was something that was owed to a Logos or word, in other words, a real idea, that existed as a reality in the mind of God. To understand ideas or form as Plato did, we need to consider the sameness or similarity between things, which is often a very difficult thing to name and define. This applies to concrete things like the similarity between a chihuahua and a German shepherd, which both have the idea or form of a dog, 
despite some very obvious differences. But the idea of similarity also applies, more importantly, to very abstract qualities like beauty and goodness and truth. Many things that are completely different from each other can be perceived as beautiful, as sharing in the form of beauty, for example. Uh, things like flowers, people, music, designed objects, art, certain animals, food, movies, and so on. And Plato would say that these things are beautiful because they participate in the transcendent form of beauty. Other transcendent forms or transcendentals would be things like unity, goodness, being, and truth. And all of these forms are in fact one and the same form. The transcendentals, in other words, equate to ideas in the mind of God. It is God who gives form to everything, and everything remains good, true, and beautiful insofar as it conforms with and participates both in the form given and in keeping with the potential it has to live out its form to the highest degree. I should probably preempt a few objections you may have to this very strange way of thinking before we move on, though. First, as many of you will probably want to point out, we certainly use a process of abstraction to arrive at the platonic idea. Sometimes, certainly, the abstractions we use are merely abstractions, and so it is possible to hold, as I do and as St. Thomas Aquinas does, to something of a moderate take on Plato's realism, which says, approximately, that sometimes ideas are abstractions, but their basic intelligibility as ideas still relies on the fact that they are not merely abstractions. For Plato, as thought contemplates the transcendentals, it is not moving away from reality, but towards what is even more real, because we are becoming more aware of that which orders and guides all of perceptible reality. We are drawn into the transcendentals beyond the realm of the merely contingent. To contemplate the forms is to gain access to the meaning of things and of their relation to the given order of reality. As we contemplate beauty as an idea, for instance, we are elevated because we are contemplating the mind of God, the mind that gives intelligibility and reality to all things. Plato calls this movement to a higher consciousness metanoia, or conversion, and it's from Plato that we get that very idea of conversion in Christian theology. Another objection to my using Plato would be along the lines of the cliché that he was a dualist and thus tends towards the Gnostic more than towards the Christian. And this is just not right. Uh, it's not exactly a, an accurate assessment of Plato at all. In fact, it's a later distortion of Plato's thinking. Plato regarded all of perceptible reality as real. But as in classical theology, God and his ideas are simply more real. This shouldn't be at all controversial or offensive to any of us. Perceptible reality is not, as in Gnostic thinking, second-rate and disposable, and flesh is not evil. In fact, the forms, as Plato conceived of them, are what give being its value and its dignity. All of perceptible reality is real by participation, and is therefore contingently real, as we've already spoken a bit about in a previous episode. What becomes and unbecomes is not enduringly real. Only the forms or ideas, as ways we name the reality of God, are real in an enduring way. And the relation between the world and God is one of analogy. 
flashbacks to the previous episode. For Plato, the world is seething with ideas. I love that thought. Which is to say that the transcendent is not remote from us, but is profoundly intimate to us and every other thing. So just to make sure we're on the same page, when Plato writes about ideas, he is writing about universals. And a philosophical problem arises out of this notion of universals, namely that it becomes difficult to understand or perhaps locate the precise relationship between the specific instance of a person, say you or me, to the universal form of the human. Human finitude and fallibility enters the frame, and sometimes our abstractions end up being inaccurate contemplations of original form. Plato knows this is a complex matter, and he is not at all frightened by that. If we struggle to discern the precise relationship between the particular and the universal, this doesn't mean that there is no relationship. But there are some philosophers who thought that better than solving the problem is just getting rid of it. The first philosophical theologian to do away with universals was Peter Abelard, who lived from 1079 to 1142. And he was a highly contentious Frenchman who believed that doubt is the beginning of wisdom since, and I quote, by doubting we are led to question and by questioning we arrive at truth. And this sounds a lot like Descartes 1.0. In a way, it is Descartes 1.0. Abelard's life, his unfortunate romance, his brilliance, his arrogance, his ruthlessness in debating and the various accusations of heresy against him are all very interesting. But the thing I want to home in on here is his so-called nominalism. The name nominalism involves a very non-platonic, in fact very anti-platonic idea that universals are just words, that is, nomina, and they are not realities. For example, Harmony, for the nominalist, is not a general thing, but something in that one specific piece of music that you just happen to be hearing. In Abelard's work, universals are not features of the real world, but of the human mind. Universals are mere abstractions and mental projections. Since Plato's position is realist, Abelard's nominalist position is irrealist. For Abelard, universals don't exist. They are literally nothing. Abelard wasn't just an irrealist about universals, but also about things like events, hylomorphic composites, who knew, propositions, of course, and relations. He thought that the concrete individual was sufficient in all of its uniqueness and richness, and he preferred atomist, material, and reductive explanations over what he would have regarded as metaphysical excess. In all of this, Abelard paves the way for modern science. That's a pretty good um, upside to all of this. But there was a significant downside too. Well, what may look like a very insignificant philosophical idea soon turns out to have catastrophic repercussions for theology and history and spirituality especially when it is taken up by a thinker most famous today for his so-called razor, William of Ockham. Ockham's nominalism insists more articulately than Abelard's that only individual things exist in reality. For him, there are no non-material transcendentals ordering the being of things. The immaterial becomes, well, immaterial. 
Along the lines of the university of being, participation in the intimate universal that is God with us is done away with. And this, in Occam's mind, is not just a matter of philosophical abstraction, but, very importantly, is a matter of politics too. Without nominalism, the very modern idea of the individual as something existing totally in isolation from others would have been impossible since nominalism creates a division between everything. Everything is what it is apart from any universal. You are not human, but just one being among others who just happens to be referred to as human. And this means that it becomes much easier to arrange the world along the lines of separateness. The nominalist self, supported by the university of being, involves the experience that we are all on our own, totally stranded, alone, isolated. Also in the political realm, the personal can much more easily be separated from religious authority through nominalism. Occam's intention was to limit papal authority in particular in the world, to create a division between the religious and the political, to split church and state, but also to split the individual from church life. We take this today as so natural as to be beyond questioning, but through various historical and philosophical twists and turns, the result of this is that religion becomes a private matter, while politics becomes public, and exacerbating the already large chasm between God and creation established by the university of being, there is a further shift away from God. Now, things don't gain their meaning by participating in anything. Their meaning is precisely in their divorce from the rest of reality. By shattering the connection between God and every particular created being, it becomes much easier to separate religion from the ordinary world. To misquote Rob Bell, for the nominalist, everything isn't spiritual. Only the spiritual stuff is spiritual. In the end, this creates a number of further fragmentations. For example, a split between the natural and the supernatural, and also a split between the sacred realm and the secular order. The separation of life into the sacred and the secular means, in the end, that religion is totally fine as long as it gives to Caesar what is owed him. Caesar, symbolically speaking, is first, Christ second. You know how today politics has become religion, while religion, especially Christianity, has become something of a taboo in many quarters? Well, we have the nominalists to thank for this. In the nominalist world, it becomes possible to be a nominal Christian, and we even have the residue of this in the idea of the denomination. The nominalist Christian is someone who acts piously on a Sunday at church, and then lives a life that resembles every other life within the so-called secular realm. Especially in the wake of the postmodern critique of modernity, which in my view is a critique that just doesn't go far enough, one of the major trends in recent times has been to try and reunite the spiritual with all of life. And that's totally fine by me, although I would hasten to point something out. The very fact that people would want to do such a thing presumes the split, between the secular and the sacred. What is hardly ever noticed is that this split was invented, and it's therefore not something that has to be overcome so much as it has to be unlearned. 
Whatever you may end up thinking about nominalism versus Platonism, a number of additional philosophical and political consequences certainly become much more plausible in the wake of nominalism's rule. For one thing, the material and the conceptual worlds are split up. In this, Gnosticism subverts the incarnational imagination and rhetoric overtakes the philosophical. For another thing, words gain a new status not as windows to truth or openings to reality, but as detached from reality. Words that once revealed a fundamental unity are now merely words. Nominalism is essentially sophistic. It provides a philosophical justification for wielding language as an arbitrary force that manipulates the world. It is also the philosophical ground, so to speak, for structural and post-structural theory and the now post-truth era. All of these things are connected. Plato had always maintained that we ought to contemplate the universals in order to better engage with the concrete world. This is the moral of his famous allegory of the cave. The enlightened person, the one who has left the cave and has seen the light, doesn't get to stay out in the light completely detached from the cares of those who are still imprisoned in the cave. He must go back down into the cave to tell the other prisoners about life outside the cave. Of course, Plato knew all too well what will happen to the enlightened person who goes back into the cave and announces reality to the nominalist who thinks he can make the world in his image. He will get killed. One of the major shifts that happens with the nominalist turn is what I refer to rather long-windedly, I really have to find a shorter way of saying this, as the reversal of the metaphorical structure of our consciousness of reality. I'll say that again. The reversal of the metaphorical structure of our consciousness of reality. The basic idea is this. Our consciousness of what is real is deeply shaped by the metaphors we use. All cognition is metaphorical. If I tell you that I see what you mean, the word see is a metaphor for the entire process of perception by which meaning has been understood. And this metaphorical structure has a direction, a means and an end. In Christian Platonist thought, creation is a metaphor for God, which is to say that the immanent is a metaphor for the transcendent, time is a metaphor for eternity, and the finite is a metaphor for the infinite. Creation is the means, and the end, the whole point of everything, is God. As in Genesis, to say that humanity was made in God's image is to say, among other things, that humanity is a metaphor for God. This metaphor has, like all metaphors, a source-target structure, meaning that one element of the metaphor, the source, is meant to elucidate something else, the target. The source is the means, and the target is the end. If man is the image of God, then the source is the directly perceptible, namely humanity. But the target, and thus the thing that humanity is indicating, is the beyond, that which is ultimately real, Yahweh, God, the unnameable source of all being. And God is only, within this contingent frame, indirectly perceptible through the metaphor. Nominalism reverses this. Without us even blinking, probably because it serves our egos so well, God becomes a metaphor for humanity. 
The nominalist means is God, and the nominalist end is humanity. More recent theologies like radical theology, wonderfully provocative and interesting though they may be, have changed the metaphorical structure according to which the incarnation has been understood. Christ is now a metaphor for our highest selves, and even the death of God is that which serves our own self-realization. And in such theologies, the resurrection of Christ becomes a metaphor for everything in life that feels like healing and renewal and rebirth. It's difficult to taste the lie in this, this reversal of the metaphorical structure of our consciousness, because the words are the same. God, Christ consciousness, incarnation, resurrection, and deification are all there, but in the subtlest manner possible, they are now about us. God has become purely imminent and therefore very easy to kill. I'll obviously get to more on this in a later episode. In more recent years, I've become very wary of theologies that are, for all their apparently good intentions, entirely self-referencing, since they take the nominalist strategy of making our imminent and immediately perceptible world more real than God. They open up a way for making theology something that I, as a stranded and alienated self in a world of alienation, concoct to serve my own state of perpetual existential crisis. The modernist idea of an autonomous self, which even the more modernist theories like René Girard's mimetic theory contest, carries in it the idea that I, auto, make the rules, that is, nomos. It's this very idea that underpins the reformer Martin Luther's idea that the individual, say me, can sit in his private study apart from tradition and the wisdom of the ages and figure out the truth of scripture on his own, apparently inspired by the Holy Spirit, who, for reasons we can't be clear on, has inspired someone else to interpret scripture in a way that is directly and diametrically opposed to my own interpretation. There is no form to theology here, no idea that gives theology its unity in this nominalist realm. It's no wonder, really, that the Queen of Sciences was forced to go into exile. By now, by now I have said probably too much, and possibly have still explained too little. It may seem from what I have said that all of the consequences I have spelled out were the intention of Abelard and Ockham. Some of them were, but... At the very least, we need to notice that we cannot be sure of their intentions, though we can be sure of what happened as a result of their meddling with tradition. Already, though, we can start to offer something of a hypothesis. Theology was forced into exile by her own subjects. Some of her subjects developed some thinking that, while appearing at first to be in service of Her Majesty, was in fact utterly detrimental to her rule. And while we can already detect some reasons for why God has become unbelievable, all we have so far at the hands of university and nominalism is a God who is distant and irrelevant. Even if nominalism begins to dig God's grave, so to speak, it is not, as far as I can tell from where I am, the thing that actually pulls the trigger. So in the next episode, I want to start looking at one of the impetuses behind nominalism that created a very volatile and tyrannical conception of God, a conception of God that 
got the reformer John Calvin to struggle to tell the difference between God and the devil. This will help us to better understand what it was that made the murder of God not only possible, but in some ways preferable to keeping him alive. But as you will see, the God that ends up getting murdered is not a God that even vaguely resembles the God of the early Christians. Already that should be clear to you, though. The univocal nominalist God already looks nothing like the God that Jesus and the early Christians spoke about. But this, for now, is where I'm going to end. Until next time, and beyond that, my hope for you is that you will perceive a deeper unity in things, that you will notice the idea, the form, that binds reality together into a harmony, that you will know the beauty, goodness, and truth in the word that spoke creation into being. Cheers.